Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks takes care of tedious accounting tasks and gives you more time to do what you love. On average, FreshBooks saves users up to 192 hours a year because it makes taking care of your books that much easier. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for Oppo listeners. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash OPPO. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling in Toronto, and I am reading all of your Jeffrey Epstein assassination theories. And I'm Jen Gerson, and I am 100% buying into all of those theories, except for the one where Clinton did it. <laughs> that one seems a little over the line for me. Hashtag Clinton body count. On this week's show, we saddle up to talk about the Mounties. As the RCMP have been on the hunt for two suspected spree-killing teenagers, we're asking, why is the RCMP still doing local policing anyway? And we fight about the fight on fake news. Is it really going to be that much of a problem for Canada's election? On day 16 of the Canada-wide manhunt, it's over. We believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. Jen, I don't know if you've been following, but in the part of the country north of where most people live, but south of the provinces that don't really have the same power as actual provinces, there's been a massive manhunt for two teens accused of killing three people in northern British Columbia. Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod crossed three provinces and numerous communities as they were on the run. The entire way, they remained inside the RCMP's jurisdiction. And I think this whole story has reminded a lot of city folk that a huge part of this country is under the jurisdiction of not municipal police forces, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Oh, I didn't forget that. Being in Alberta, <laughs> I was quite aware of that fact, thanks. I think a lot of people do forget. I mean, if you live in Ontario, you don't live in a jurisdiction under the RCMP, and I think it's really easy to forget. Unless you don't live in Ontario. <laughs> That's kind of my point. Or Quebec, or Quebec. And not to disparage the fine work of our Mounties, but I think this case raises some pretty good questions as to why exactly our National Police Force is handling so many local communities. 
Now, I don't want to litigate this whole case because it's only recently come to a close. Both of the teenagers were found dead just a couple of days ago. But I think it's worth remembering that Schmigelsky and McLeod allegedly killed three people, fled the province, and weren't even announced as suspects until more than a week after the first bodies were found. That is crazy. By this point, they'd already made it 3,000 kilometers away. And of course, they were probably already dead. And also, I mean, because this is a politics show, I think we also have to note that there are some really interesting political implications for uh, the fact that we have this vast, wide-ranging police force um, that covers local communities and small communities. Rural policing and self-defense laws are intrinsically tied up with conservative politics in rural areas. And you also start to see the RCMP become a bit of a pawn when, uh, for example, Alberta starts to get huffy and starts demanding its own powers equivalent to what Ontario and Quebec has. You know, they, they've, they've argued in the Stephen Harper firewall letter that uh, this province should have its own police force, that it shouldn't be uh, governed by the RCMP. I I also remember the RCMP becoming a major political issue back in 2013, for example, when uh, the big floods happened here in Alberta and they raided homes and took guns out of the homes, right? The gun so, I mean, grab. The gun grab, exactly. So like the fact that you have this centralized federal police force um, overseeing local and small communities outside of central Canada uh, can sometimes be a really hot button political issue outside of central Canada. That's absolutely right. And, you know, for many people, you know, this distrust and sort of concern about having this big, huge national national police force, which also polices many small communities. In fact, one in three police officers in this country uh, are RCMP officers, and they you know, basically police wide swaths of the country outside most urban areas. Never mind that the RCMP now has the job of not just doing local policing in these communities, but also uh, financial fraud, terrorism, national security, protective policing for dignitaries, the Prime Minister Cabinet, and many others, um, as well as a raft of other services, including technology, managing a national crime database, and multiple other things. It is actually a service that seems to be doing everything. I think a lot of people know the history of this organization, and it was an organization created basically to, quote-unquote, police indigenous communities, but, in, you know, in, in fact oppress them. I mean, it literally was created by John A. Macdonald uh, in the model of, uh, you know, a constabulary which was aimed at kind of keeping down, you know, Irish communities. He basically reapportioned that idea into creating a national federal paramilitary policing force to go after indigenous peoples. Obviously, it's it's not quite that today, but I think a lot of concerns about having a police force run out of the central government are still really, really legitimate, and they're sort of percolating more in the past couple of years, and you I actually see this conversation coming to the forefront, you know, within the next, you know, couple of mandates of, of the next federal governments. And you're starting to see communities talk seriously about replacing the RCMP with something else. And especially when we're moving into a model where, you know, there's more focus on community-based policing, right? Like it really is about making people feel like they are being policed by representatives in their communities. And what you have with the RCMP model is a lot of people essentially parachuting into these communities and, and enforcing the laws from above. And is that the kind of adversarial approach that's most effective for the police service, and especially in a country like Canada? Um, I kind of made mention to this before, but, you know, one of the big, hot, hot issues in a lot of areas in rural Canada is self-defense laws. And the reason why those are such a big issue, and gun laws in particular are such a big issue there, is because they will, they will tell you, a lot of farmers in particular will tell you, they are targets for thieves, they are targets for burglars, because they live so far outside of an urban center that if they call 911, it could take 45 minutes to an hour and a half for anybody to show up. So, like, for them, the whole idea of having a gun to be able to shoot off at, at potential thieves and robbers 
robbers and murderers and whatever else becomes an intrinsic part of their identity because they do feel the need to be able to protect themselves and their family. That is a very, very, very different model than what you are dealing with if you are living, you know, in downtown Toronto or downtown Winnipeg and you can just pick up a phone and get police at your door within five minutes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly some truth to the, the fact that, you know, the contract model that the RCMP operates on. So, you know, if you are a local community or a part of, of a province that wants to have the RCMP come in and handle local policing, you sign a contract, you sign a service agreement with the RCMP to hire officers in the local level to run uh, basically detachments in your communities and to, to, you know, protect law and order. Now, part of the problem with that, thanks to a Golden Mail investigation that's actually quite good and, and thorough, uh, we know that, that the RCMP tends to actually staff those communities at lower levels than municipal police forces. They studied a whole bunch of communities throughout British Columbia, mostly in the mainland and the south of British Columbia, and they found that basically, with only one exception, uh, the RCMP police uh, divisions had had lower manpower than uh, communities like Vancouver, Delta, New Westminster, communities that have local police forces or their own police services. Um, and it's obvious when you have a national police force, they're constrained to uh, national spending priorities. When, you know, say the Harper government puts caps on spending and spending growth, that impacts the RCMP as well. And that has a very real effect in local communities across the country. And it also means there's just so many levels of separation between your local community detachment and, you know, the people they are accountable to back in Ottawa, right? I mean, your local community may actually be really, really crime ridden in a rural area or a small town area. And there are lots of places in BC, Alberta and Manitoba where that's the case. And if they're being understaffed and you're complaining about their being understaffed, who in Ottawa gives a shit, right? Like there's, there's very little feedback loop in terms of actually making sure that, you know, a, a lot of these people are responding to the local community's needs. Um, and actually, I didn't know this until you brought it up, uh, Justin, but apparently Surrey is considering ditching the RCMP. So yeah. increasingly municipalities, as they start to gain the type of population and revenue base required to uh, support a local police force, are saying, you know what, this isn't a good deal for us. Yeah, Surrey's a difficult uh, example because the mayor of Surrey is a guy named Doug McCallum, who's kind of modeled himself on this small town scrappy populist. Um, and there's not a lot of actual thought behind his decision to get rid of the RCMP. I mean, he, it could end up being a domino process, but I think that might be a one-off. I don't think the conversation is where it needs to be for a lot of communities to start realistically looking at getting rid of the RCMP. Surrey may end up being a bad example on that front, or you know, it, it could be the opposite, but I'm not sure there was a lot of rigor that went behind the decision to uh, ditch the RCMP in Surrey and adopt their own municipal police force. Maybe it'll work out great in the end. But isn't it interesting that like ditching the RCMP is actually one of the planks that Canadian populists put in their platforms and their ideas? <laughs> yeah, it actually does model itself off of a very good populist talking point. Now, there's, there's a 2005 Auditor General report that actually bashed the entire contract policing service. Uh, the Auditor General at the time wrote, quote, as a whole, the RCMP is accountable solely to the federal government. It wrote that basically police advisory boards, um, you know, municipalities, provinces had almost no say beyond kind of an informal conversation on how the RCMP actually polices local communities. The RCMP say they've changed that to some degree, but they're not responsive to, uh, say, you know, local police citizen tribunals uh, or to uh, boards that are supposed to oversee uh, ethics complaints or use of force complaints. That happens on the federal level through a federal system that has been routinely bashed as being inadequate and being insufficient. Um, never mind that the RCMP has, has been alleged to have been a hotbed of sexual harassment and sexual assault in 
inside the service itself a, a problem that's only now being dealt with. Um, you know, there are systemic problems here that seem to be percolating and bubbling up, but never fully addressed. Even as recently as this year, the Auditor General found the RCMP wasn't doing enough to equip and train its officers on firearms, which is a very pertinent concern because in New Brunswick, just a couple of years ago, uh, multiple RCMP officers were shot to death because in part, they didn't have the equipment necessary to, to defend themselves in an active shooter scenario, uh, which was you know, the Justin Bork case. So, you know, there are real concerns here that this cash strap service that is spread across the country is simply not working. I've spoken to some people who, are, who who do studies, for example, white collar crime, and they do say that because of the way that we've structured our policing, Canada is actually a real haven for fraud because we've got like essentially one national unit for, for investigating major white collar crime and fraud. And as a result, there just aren't the resources to crack down on some of these things like there are in the U.S. So here's what sort of bothers me about uh, the, the fraud thing. You know, I, I do think we have a fraud problem in this country. I think it's more about the statutes and legislation and laws that we have around fraud and, and not so much the investigation. That, that's neither here nor there. Um, my point is kind of that uh, we already have an institution that's supposed to be receiving complaints in terms of fraud and money laundering. That, that's FinTrack, the Financial uh, Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada. Um, you know, Certainly, you, you need a policing partner on top of that, but we already have many local and provincial police services that handle uh, money laundering and, and fraud. The fact that we have uh, potentially municipal police forces, provincial police forces, as well as a federal police force, as well as a reporting center, as well as, in some cases, CSIS, um, I think you will have cases where there's duplication of resources and intent and expertise. And I'm not sure there's always a real thought process behind uh, where you can find uh, efficiencies here. We, we learned this in the mid-1980s through the McDonald Commission. Uh, the RCMP was kind of doing everything in terms of terrorism, intelligence, subversive investigations, um, and was not doing them especially well because the RCMP was sort of all things. It led to this sort of, uh, you know, omnipotent police force that it raised real questions around ethics, policing, and, you know, basically um, guidelines about how, uh, you know, our federal police force um, is, is investigating uh, crimes or threats or believed subversive groups. That's what led to the creation of CSIS, our national spy agency. And we've actually seen a significant rollback the RCMP have gotten back into intelligence, national security, and terrorism. Um, and it's basically overlapping a lot with what CSIS does. And you know, there has not been a good analysis of who's doing what and, and a division of labor here in many, many years. And I think we're well overdue. So where's this going to go? Do you think there's actually going to be room to talk about this in the, in the, in the coming federal election? <laughs> no. No, but I mean, like, I could see an argument for, hey, we need to sort of like break down the RCMP a little bit and, and, and focus more on local policing and then maybe just hand off some of the broader federal mandate stuff um, to the RCMP. Fraud being the classic example. Like, yes, the RCMP should be investigating white collar crime and fraud. They shouldn't necessarily be the guys who are hunting down the local ditch for like the dead bodies in the woods. Or, or they, they could be handling the national, international aspect of money laundering or fraud, but local police should be the ones doing the on the ground investigations or in partnership with the RCMP. Would that help solve some of these problems or address some of these problems? I think so. And actually, I think if you had this conversation, I think it's a possibility of seeing better policing outcomes. So, you know, another prime example is that the federal government just last year in, in their budget announced $327 million over five years um, to support guns and gangs initiatives. And a big chunk of that money is going to the RCMP, except that's already what a lot of city police forces do. Um, there is a real question to be asked about whether or not we're basically um, creating two competing levels 
levels of policing, one on the city level in places like Toronto and Vancouver, and one on the national and sort of rural level. Are, you know, are they actually cooperating? In a lot of cases, we learned they're not. You only have to think back to the Picton inquiry, which basically found that the RCMP and Vancouver police didn't talk to each other. Um, and that led to the disappearances of many, many women um, that was you know, inadequately investigated. Which is especially it's interesting because I believe Vancouver has a police municipal force where the women were going missing, but where the women were found is actually where I'm from, and I believe that is actually RCMP jurisdiction. Yes, absolutely, and actually some of the women were living in RCMP jurisdiction because uh, the, the lines are quite arbitrary. You can, um, you know, walk uh, 20 minutes out of Vancouver and end up in, in RCMP jurisdiction. Um, and I've actually talked to many uh, people engaged in the sex work industry in, in Vancouver, and they'll tell you that Vancouver is actually relatively good right now. The municipal police force force um, does not consider it a priority to be arresting or harassing or, or uh, prosecuting uh, sex workers or their clients. And it's created an actually very safe environment. There's not been a murder of a sex worker in Vancouver in many years. Now, you go outside the city and that is completely different. The RCMP, because they are beholden to federal priorities, not local ones, are arresting and harassing sex workers and their clients. And there have been murders of sex workers in those communities. So there actually is a disparate level of public safety outcomes in different communities based on who's who's policing them. And I, I don't think the RCMP are responsive to local needs. And that is leading to bad outcomes. Never mind that they're less funded. They're funded at a lower level than uh, the municipal police forces. Um, and on top of that, you know, in some cases, they're just not as attuned to local concerns because they don't respond to the city council or to the premier. And I think, you know, there is a real conversation to be had about if we move away from the RCMP doing contract and local policing, can we get something better that is more efficient, that is better funded, that actually does uh, take into account local priorities? And no, Nowhere is that more true than First Nations. There has been a real push. It's not been well covered. McLean's did a great feature on it. Um, but uh, there is a real push towards getting uh, Indigenous police officers policing Indigenous communities instead of the RCMP. And they are seeing positive outcomes from this. Now, what needs to happen is the federal and provincial governments need to step up and start funding that instead of pouring money yeah. into the RCMP. Yeah, well, like you're going to see good initiatives just as long as you see those forces well-funded and well-trained, right? And as a similar parallel to what we see with um, uh, child and family services on reserves, for example, uh, a lot of the um, sort of kinship care and and uh, child care that is intended to keep children um, close to their communities and First Nations areas, like they're just grossly underfunded compared to the uh, provincial counterparts. And as a result, you see like these horrible, horrible outcomes for... Um, you know, children who are taken into uh, uh, custody on reserve versus children who are taken into custody off reserve. Because there's still an absolutely a belief of, you know, daddy knows best. The federal government knows better than you. Let us come in and, and, and do things for you. If you want to do it yourself, that's cute have fun. You know, there actually is a, dis you know, a very condescending paternalist colonialist attitude here. You know, I think this is actually a really good place for the conservatives, maybe even the NDP, to actually sort of poke at the federal government and, and call them out for not uh, funding and prioritizing local public safety concerns. This is a basic issue uh, of, of policing. You know, for the NDP, I think there's there's a, a big conversation to be had about whether or not the RCMP is well equipped to police indigenous and marginalized uh, and non-white communities. You know, for the for the conservatives, it, it is a financing issue. The federal government is not funding policing in communities well enough. And the RCMP, I think, is part of that problem. And actually, to give them credit, some uh, conservative MPs, including uh, Blake Culkins and other Alberta MPs, have raised this issue and started, started that conversation to some degree last year. Uh, but I think it should be in the forefront of this election. Uh, and it won't be because this election is uh, going to blow.
and uh, nothing important is going to be discussed. And uh, uh, I kind of wish I was pregnant, Jen. So you could just skip it. You know what? If we're, <laughs> if we're lucky, Justin, we will be talking about the food guide for the next four weeks. It'll be great. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. On Audible, you can listen to titles like the one I'm currently enjoying, The Courage to be Disliked. Written by Fumitaki Koga and Ashiro Kishimi and narrated by Adrian Mulraney. The Japanese phenomenon that teaches us the simple yet profound lessons required to liberate our real selves and find lasting happiness. Using the theories of Alfred Adler, one of the giants of 19th century psychology, the authors explain how we are all free to determine our own future, free of the shackles of past experiences, doubts, and the expectations of others. It's a philosophy that's profoundly liberating, allowing us to develop the courage to change and to ignore the limitations that we and those around us can place on ourselves. Start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. One of the biggest burdens of any freelancer is having more time to actually do the work you need to do. Take this from me. There are not enough hours in the day to deal with invoicing and also, you know, trying to figure out whether or not the Russians are screwing with your democratic processes and, you know, following up with employers but actually paying you and, you know, exposing corruption at the highest levels of the government. Those menial tasks take up an obscene amount of time and my God, FreshBooks helps you manage them so much better than doing them yourself in a bunch of spreadsheets and documents and emails and oh god using max preview to edit my invoices those days are over now freshbooks does all of that for me most of it's automated it's so intuitive and you can spend way more time doing stuff that actually matters to you and that will make you money freshbooks is even offering a free 30-day trial for oppo listeners just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about a section that's freshbooks.com slash oppo So, Justin, I can't help but notice that almost every single news outlet seems to have hired a staff to get ahead of the expected wave of fake news and disinformation ahead of this election. And I got to admit something. What do you have to admit? I think some of it, although not all of it, might be kind of bullshit. As in, it's more of a solution in search of a problem. Oh, when you, when you have a fake news hammer, everything starts to look like fake news. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to put a caveat around this. I have really no doubt in my mind that there will be some foreign actors who try to play a role in influencing the coming election, probably by inflaming passions and sowing discord, similar to what we saw in the US. Nor do I doubt for a single moment that the Russians, for example, did this on Facebook. We have lots of evidence to show that they did. Whether or not it actually tipped that election is pretty debatable, but they were certainly active players in it. But from what we've seen so far, and I want to put a big caveat on this, so far, uh, fake news hasn't really been that much of a problem in Canada. Yeah, and for those who are not really following the fake news beat, you know, maybe as closely as myself and Jen, are basically a number of outlets, BuzzFeed, the Toronto Star, CBC, the National Observer, some others have prioritized the fight against fake news and misinformation, and they have published story after story, some of them really good crackerjack journalism, some of them, ah, not quite so amazing. Everything from, you know, stories about how uh, 
Twitter uh, automated bots are pushing the Trudeau must go hashtag to the purported threat of Russia, China and others uh, to our democracy and their supposed plans to, you know, pump in fake news or bots or misinformation or uh, weaponized information uh, to try to sway the voting public into a certain way or towards a certain okay, party. But wait, wait, there's there, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's first start with our definition. Fake news has a very specific meaning. And it's more than just a meme I don't like or um, something I disagree with or, you know, a, a news article that has factually incorrect information in it. Fake news has a meaning that is knowingly and intentionally wrong or misleading and designed to inflame in order to get clicks onto their specific site. Um, an example for this, I mean, you've done some interesting stories. What, what is it on? The Buffalo Chronicle? The Buffalo Chronicle, yeah. uh, a website that purports to be a real newspaper out of Buffalo, but in fact was just making shit up, like completely inventing sources. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even say that's even fake news. That's It's misinformation. It's hucksterism. Um, there's also been cases of, of headlines from very rinky-dink sites uh, with headlines like Canada's Prime Minister begs Nigeria president for one million immigrants, which of course is just completely fake. I've also seen, for example, like like a uh, 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 Jerry Butts made twenty three million dollars in office. I mean, like stuff like that is fake news. Now, I classify that as fake news as opposed to disinformation because. To me, the definition of fake news has to include some element of monetization. Most fake news outlets are doing it for money. They're doing it like out of like it's a it's a it's a mom and pop couple who are like running this out of their basement, who are just literally making shit up that they know is going to piss people off because they're trying to get those you know million dollar clicks and adverts. It's not always it's not money. always money. You know, I think I think there there is intent. There, you know the the Russian troll farm did create literal fake news, not news you didn't like, but news that was made up and invented as a way to inflame tensions in America in the lead up to the last election. That I would classify as disinformation. I think it's still the same thing. Uh, I think it is it is worth it is worth fighting, and I, I think this is out there, and it's something we have to be on the lookout for. Here's the thing: it is actually very rare. You know these totally made up, completely completely fabricated, no ounce of truth, totally invented sort of stories, they don't come along all that often. There's, I can probably count on one hand the number of Canadian examples of this that have reached any level of prominence, you know, has had any number of readers uh, in this country on one hand. And and honestly, you know, everyone, you know, sniffing around searching for them are mostly wasting their time because it's not that common. And yet there's so many people dedicated now to try to sniff out these instances of fake news. It's not really happening. So I'm going to pick on two stories here that kind of demonstrate exactly what I find so annoying about this coverage. With all due apologies to my colleagues, but I'm going to give you two examples. Here, headline, Twitter trolls stoke debate about immigrants and pipelines in Canada data show. Nine million troll tweets released by Twitter reveal foreign funding campaign to influence Canadians' opinions. And you're, look at that headline, you're like, nine million tweets, oh my god, there must have been so much influence. And yet you click on the story and it's, since 2013, 245 of these accounts, presumably linked to, like, Russia, uh, Iran, and Venezuela, have retweeted messages from legitimate Canadian activists, politicians, and media reports about various pipeline issues. And you start to dive into the actual details, and we're talking about stuff that at this point is statistically insignificant. And let me tell you, you want to talk pipeline debate, there's no shortage of actual legitimate passion on both sides. Like, you, the, the, the guys who are running the pro-pipeline accounts here in Alberta, like, one of them, for example, is Corey Battershill. He's probably one of the most successful activists on the file. You know, like, he's not 
a Russian troll. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? this is the problem when you create this narrative that basically the Russians or Iranians or the Saudis or whoever um, want to poison the well of these conversations. You have to make sure you give the context and scope and magnitude or else you risk basically poisoning a whole bunch of people against that movement into believing it's a foreign funded menace when in fact it's just something you don't like. Exactly. And this is the other story I'm going to pick on a little bit here, even though it was a really, really good story, and I don't mean to, but the um, the National Observer story. Now, this was a really good story, and I'm not saying this sh- story shouldn't have been done, but the, they, they did this piece on, like, the Trudeau must go hashtag, and how, like, this was some kind of foreign disinformation campaign. And yet, when you look at the numbers that they provided in their story, what they really found was, like... 30 bots out of thousands and thousands of people tweeting Trudeau must go. So did the 30 bots have like a a say or a play in amplifying those tweets? Absolutely. But guess what? Any partisan hashtag trend theme, anything that's contentious in Canada is going to be bolstered by bots to some extent. That doesn't mean that the campaign, the tweet, the hashtag, whatever in and of itself is illegitimate. And if you aren't really careful to provide that context, it just risks poisoning the whole discourse because, you know, then people go on to assume that everybody who is on the other side is just some kind of like brainwashed drone of the Russians. You know what I mean? And that's not healthy either yeah it, it, and, and, and we do have to look at the systems that allow this sort of thing to happen uh, it, it is undoubted uh, that many of these troll accounts do flood some hashtags with certain narratives whether it's anti-immigrant pro-immigrant anti-trudeau pro-trudeau that happens um and it is worth calling that out but you know when we are constantly just running story after story about the result as opposed to the processes that let it happen or the reasons why this is happening in the first place we are losing the forest for the trees and this is my problem with some of these disinformation bureaus is that they seem so hell-bent on just following the minutiae of every single update of every single troll account of every single facebook group that seems problematic that you you really do lose that perspective now i've done a lot of this reporting like i've said you know i would i just wrote a couple of stories for vice about um you know how uh, senator bovino conservative senator from quebec was a member of some far-right facebook groups that was not forward meddling that wasn't even misinformation you know this sort of stuff can be covered in a way that doesn't try to link everything to the Russians because, and this is the really key thing, it makes it harder to actually pin stuff on the Russians when it's actually them because the Russians do fuck with our democracy. But, you know, when you cry wolf too many times, people stop believing you. We can't let well, foreign influence become a partisan issue. It should be a uniting issue but, we're but all it is, against. But it, is, but it is a partisan issue. And this is where I think this stuff gets really corrosive is that both the media and all the political parties are trying to turn this narrative to their advantage. Right, exactly. The media, the media has a vested interest in pumping up the fake news narrative because it helps them bolster their case for a bailout, which is exactly what the mainstream media has been doing, frankly. Yeah. Both political parties have an interest in, in you know, proclaiming that they and they alone are the victims of fake news because like it allows all parties to sort of uh, shift that narrative to their advantage. We are the victims of foreign influence and like the people who are tweeting against us aren't actually real people. Right. They're just, you know, brainwashed drones who are out to get us. And like, isn't this a nefarious influence? You people are traitors and being duped, right? And all the parties are doing it. And this is why I get really, really, really skeptical about things like Canada's commissioner of elections uh, stepping in and sort of 
trying to create some kind of governing body to decide between what's fake news and well, what's not. Well, that's not like, doing that. That's not a thing. That itself is fake news, Jen. That's not a thing that's happening. The commissioner of elections has, is, is nominally the head of a committee that will activate in the event a serious case of interference or meddling occurs. They don't decide what's fake news and what's not. They are there well, in the event. Enough. In the event something happens, like what happened in the French election, where uh, you know, basically Russian hackers accessed a dummy... Well, what they thought was a legitimate account for Emmanuel Macron and dumped the emails. Um, it is good to have a rapid response team in that sort of circumstance because it could happen. Well, and actually Macron handled that extremely, extremely well. That yes. was a, that was that super, was super funny. Planning. They basically, they totally baited those guys with yeah. fake emails. It was brilliant. And the media re- so acted like, very responsibly and thoughtfully and, and didn't, um, you know, actually took the time to get it right, didn't ring the alarm bells uh, immediately, but did kind of thoughtfully report on the TikTok of how that hack happened. And if and, that's, and if that's, and if that's all it is, I have no real issue with it. But my, my, my deep skepticism or my concern about something like that is that, you know, if you're dealing with a system or an apparatus that has already degraded trust in the government or in media, you know, having a government entity or something that's perceived to be a government entity, even a nonpartisan uh, independent government entity kind of weighing in on this stuff is only going to you know, add more fuel to the confirmation bias, and it's only going to make things worse. That's that's my fear about this stuff. Now, it's possible that that won't happen, and that this is a really you know smart, well planned committee, and that it's all going to work out just fine. So that's great. But the thing that I would point out is that, as I said, some of the stuff that we're talking about, disinformation, fake news, five years ago, we just would have been calling partisan bullshit because we're heading into an election and we're going to be dealing with reams of that. But I, I do think you know, what, what part of this reporting does actually touch on is the fact that there are now big gaps in our laws or our processes or how we understand elections that you know we didn't have to think about five years ago. You know, there are uh, Facebook groups, you know, reams of Facebook pages created by political uh, activists who don't spend any money and therefore are not captured by the Elections Act and therefore are are not governed by anything and can do whatever they want. You can basically remake Ontario Proud, but if you don't spend a dollar on advertising, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to report anything. You don't have to tell anybody you're running it. You know, Andrew Shear's director of communications could set up 400 Facebook pages pumping out various attacks on on, on every single candidate on every riding in the country and wouldn't have to disclose much of that information. That's a problem, but that's not a misinformation problem. That is a different problem. Yeah, that's a different problem. And actually, you know, I mean, the Liberals passed Bill C-76, which bans, for example, third parties from using foreign cash to do part of next activity. I have no problem with that. That sounds great. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm saying we can close some of these loopholes. But I'm just saying like, look, everybody is behaving cynically here. Everybody is behaving to their own advantage. And every party uses, quote unquote, fake news to try and spin things to their advantage. Last word, because I, you know, I, I there, there are going to be fake news and there is misinformation bureaus in many of these news outlets for the course of the election. Um, I, I just plead with you, stop with the fact checks. Stop with the breathless reporting about every single bot you found. You know, stop trying to make every social media post the evidence of the wide conspiracy of Russia or China or Saudi Arabia influencing our elections because the reality is they probably are trying to influence our elections but they're probably not using the same tactics they used four years ago in america you have to look at where the ball's going not where it was there's been some fantastic reporting out of europe about uh, basically russian efforts to pay off um 
various politicians on the far right, but also how to use advertising to pump up far right media and other more creative, subtle ways of creating uh, discord and sowing disinformation. Look at that stuff. Stop doing the same story every time because it's no really it's no longer all that effective. Think creatively because, oh, my God, I cannot read another troll bot story. You should always be skeptical about what you see in the mainstream media. You should always be skeptical about what you see on Facebook and Twitter, for fuck's sakes. And you should always be skeptical, especially of everything you hear on Oppo. (laughs) We are paid for by R.A. Novosky. I think I should thank our sponsor, uh, the Russian government. Do you enjoy being shot in your apartment building? Try the Russian government. And Jen Gerson disappears. <laughs> well, that's Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks with our fat Russian checks. Tell your friends about us and find us on iTunes to give us a rating. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you think. We'll also be available on Russian social media platform VK. Not really. Anyway, Jen, you're supposed to be here for the next episode, but it's possible you're going to give birth before that. So yeah, I'm, I'm 36 weeks. So start the betting pool now. I could pop it any minute. Well, hashtag Jen baby 2019. If you're not here, good luck. Thanks. Cause I'm definitely not coming back if I give birth. Fair. <laughs> At least for a couple weeks. This episode of Oppo was produced by Laura Howells with help from David Crosby from Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and the theme music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is Semizdat. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.